This is an ABC podcast. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. When you look at the weather report, your eyes will probably go straight to the temperature. That might answer the what do I wear question, or perhaps you go straight to the rain or the fire danger. But many of us are missing perhaps the most important part of the weather report altogether, and that's the UV index. Last year, 344 Victorians had to be taken to the emergency department in hospitals across the state for treatment for severe sunburn, many of them young adults or adolescents. Now, as it warms up, the Cancer Council is urging us to think about the UV, not just the heat. Good morning to you, Kirsten Diprose, joining you from ABC's Warnable studio today for the Conversation Hour, filling in for Rochelle Hunt. Skin cancer kills nearly 2,000 Australians every year. That's more than the national road toll. And ultraviolet radiation is the main cause of melanoma. So while we welcome these summer months, do we take the dangers seriously enough? Despite the warnings, there's still a prevalent tanning culture. Has complacency around sun protection crept in or do we simply need to better understand how to protect ourselves from UV? UV just isn't like the sun's light or heat, which we can actually see and feel. The UV level is confusing in that it can be high on a cold or cloudy day and uh, it can be just as high as, as a scorching day. We will be joined this hour by a 26-year-old woman who's had her own harrowing battle with melanoma and also Professor Richard Scolia from the Melanoma Institute Australia. But joining us right now in the studio to help us better understand UV and sun protection is Craig Sinclair, Adjunct Associate Professor and Head of Prevention at the Cancer Council of Victoria. Welcome to the program, Craig. Thank you, Kirsten. It's wonderful to be here. Now, we still know that the weather and, you know, heat is kind of what people are looking at. Are they looking at UV as much? Well, we certainly know not many people are paying much attention to the UV uh, and the UV index. The, The reason why it's sometimes confusing is that the levels of ultraviolet radiation we, we have in Australia, which are, are, are particularly high be, because we, we have such uh, wonderful clear skies, we have a, a latitude that is relatively close uh, across the country to the equator, it means that we experience very high UV. And UV in itself is not something that we can feel um, and we can't see it. So in many ways, it's, it's difficult to detect. It's quite different to the, the sun's, uh, it's the, the heat from the sun, the infrared, which we know as the weather warms up, we get that immediate sense that uh, we, we need to be prepared for outside. With ultraviolet radiation, there aren't many indicators uh, beyond really understanding the UV index to know what is the level of risk associated with UV when we are outside. Tell us about the UV index. Um, what does it mean when it's two or three as opposed to eight or nine? I believe today in um, Melbourne it's eight. Yeah, during the, the winter months, particularly in Victoria, the UV levels generally would hover be, below three, uh, one or two. In Up in Queensland, it might be three, four or five. 
But what we, the general advice from the World Health Organisation is when the UV index is less than three, as we experience in those winter months, sun protection uh, is not required and we should be able to enjoy the great outdoors without necessarily being too concerned about the risks associated with UV radiation. When we get to this time of the year, the UV levels really start ramping up considerably and as you said today the the UV is already very high and we're not even close to summer yet which means it can take a relatively short period of times to get the first signs of sunburn unless we take the right precautions to protect ourselves when when we're outside. 1300 222 is the number, or you can text in on 0437 774 774. And just a bit of a disclaimer that all of the information in today's program is of a general nature only. Please do call up and share your story, and you can ask a question, but we just can't give personalised advice. And if you do have any concerns, then please see a doctor. So 1300 is the number to call and Craig Sinclair is with us in the studio uh, from Cancer Council Victoria. When it comes to sunscreen, most of us grew up with it and wear it and know we should be wearing it, but are all sunscreens the same? Well, they've all been tested to the same Australian standard. So when we buy a, a sunscreen with an SPF associated with it and we're buying it from a a legitimate retailer, we can have the full confidence that the product, um, as stated on the label, whether it's an SPF 30 or SPF 50, which is the most common sunscreen available now, that it meets some minimum standards required in Australia. And we're quite fortunate here in this country because sunscreens are are recognised as a, a pharmaceutical a therapeutic drug by by the Therapeutic Goods Administration, which means that there's really stringent requirements around uh, production and testing. So from a point of view of, of sunscreens, my advice generally is to not worry too much whether it's an SPF 30 or 50. Um, they're both very valuable in in terms of providing protection. 50 can provide better protection, but it's more important to buy a product that provides that cosmetic appeal to you, something that you actually like applying. Because what we, we know very clearly is people do not put on enough sunscreen so it's very hard to get the protection that uh, the product's been tested to on your own skin when you're not applying enough. And if you like the product you're applying, uh, it, it, you're actually probably better to purchase an SPF 30 that you really like applying because you're going to use more of it than choosing an SPF 50 which might not have that same cosmetic feel or gives you that ghosting effect and therefore you're using it more sparingly. And don't worry too much about the price either. As as we as I said, because of the very stringent testing regime we have in this country, it doesn't matter too much in terms of whether you're spending fifty dollars or fifteen uh, on your product. It's about making sure that you choose a product that's water resistant. It, it it's cosmetically appealing and at least an SPF thirty. 
A text from Mark. Hi, Kirsten. I just turned 60 and there was not a summer growing up in Melbourne where I was not peeling skin off myself. Protection from the sun back then was non-existent. I'm waiting for the day it will come back to bite me. I fully expect to get something nasty. It's only a meta matter of when. Yes, older generations, of course, uh, you know, grew up in the sun. They were told to get out and get more sun, get as much sun as you could is what they were told. Yes, well, we're certainly seeing that reflected in the melanoma rates in Victoria. So that example of the, of the text is a really good one because a, a person in their 60s will have only have had probably half of their life exposed to those educational messages around how important it is that we protect ourselves when we're outside. So it means the other half of their life, they they have not had those reminders and they will have experienced, as many people have in their 60s, there's so many stories that um, we all know of where people talk about how they did behave out in the sun. And my, my own sisters, I recall, used to get on top of the garage roof with their alfoil and um, and strip off and that was just what you did back then. Uh, so it's not unusual and what what that means is that we're seeing melanoma rates continue to increase in those older age groups. But the good news is that those under the age of 50 who've been exposed to our SunSmart messages, have been exposed to the sort of policies that are in place, whether it's in occupational settings or in, in primary schools and early childhood settings, we're starting to see a downturn in melanoma rates. So it's a great uh, example of what prevention can do, but you just got to wait a while. Yeah, look, I'm uh, in my late 30s and I certainly grew up with the no hat, no play rule with all of that SunSmart advice. And my mother actually had melanoma at the age of 36. And fortunately, she survived and she's still with us today in her 70s. But I always understood how harmful and dangerous the sun can be because of that. And I also had two uncles who died of skin cancer Mm. and they lived in, in Queensland. So... I know that I had that really kind of strong appreciation for what the sun and what the UV index can do or the UV radiation rather can do. Do you think the message is still cutting across? Like I feel like we were the first generation after our parents. Our parents were the ones who burnt themselves. themselves. We were the ones who learnt from that. And now there's a a new generation that hear the sun smart uh, messages, but there is still a tanning culture, Craig Sinclair. Yeah, uh, you're right, Kirsten. And I I definitely see that down on the beach, um, particularly in relation to young people, teenagers in particular. The example you talked about in terms of your own experience in primary schools, where that no hat play in the shade policy is incredibly effective. There, There would not be a primary school in this state that would not have a, a no hat play in the shade policy or something close to it. So we have achieved remarkable things there. But there is something that happens between uh, those six weeks of the end of grade six as uh, our kids transition into high school and we're just not seeing that continuation of um, reminders that in that enforcement of good sun protection practices and that tanning culture still continues 
Um, we have made some advances, though, and, and one of those that I'm really proud of in Australia is that we have banned commercial sunbeds, and um, most listeners will probably re- recall those. They they were certainly uh, an instrument that enabled people to develop tan even in winter and were clearly very harmful and contributed to many melanomas. Because you get the UV radiation through the tanning beds. Correct. You can artificially get UV radiation. And you're getting it at quite intense levels over a very short period of time and people were regularly going back to them to top up. So in those cases, uh, we have made some great advances. I think the tanning culture has definitely changed since the the 1980s I, I do recall i've got some great examples of advertising back in the 1980s of people um the advertising was showing a dark and very dark tan as being highly desirable where we haven't got that same culture now but i take your point that um, a tan for some people is still very much socially desirable there are recently there was uh, i guess tiktok ha- had to sort of come out and saying that it would ban videos promoting sunbaking because there was this tanning culture really taking hold on on so- social media almost it being cool to be sunburnt which you know is mm. <laughs> incredible like mm. can you explain really what sunburn is Look, this one would be a great one for Richard when he comes on. He, he's very qualified in this case. But yes. sunburn is, is essentially when your skin gets too much radiation, it starts trying to protect itself and, and sometimes it creates melanin to, to do that. And that causes that DNA change to enable that to happen. And then when you have uh, even more on top of that, your skin just can't possibly protect itself so it's the blood vessels that are rising to the surface and as you mentioned in your introduction there is some very acute effects of uv radiation some that lend itself to going to the emergency department but most australians have experienced the the more immediate effects of sunburn which is incredibly uncomfortable and and certainly not desirable so it's a real concern when you see on social media examples where it becomes trends for people essentially showing off their, their sunburn. This question from Kylie in Camberwell, does UV pass through windows? Wondering if I should apply tint to my car windows. Yeah, in relation to car windows, you're generally well protected. Uh, there is some UV that does pass through car windows but you'd have to be driving for long periods of time to really warrant the benefit of that investment. So if you were a travelling salesperson, you were a truck driver, uh, you were spending long times in the vehicle on the road, then a tinted windows would be beneficial and you'd get that return in investment. But I think for the average person who might be driving uh, an hour or so a day, it's If you're just doing it for the purposes of reducing your UV exposure, it will make a difference, but it won't be a substantial difference. 1300 222 774 or text in on 0437 774 774. Leone has called in from Cavendish. Hi, Leone. Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I'm just curious. 
You were talking about how Australia has a high UV rate all over the country, uh, given its proximity, uh, one presumes, to the equator. What about Antarctica? Does that have any high UV at all? It, uh, it doesn't have UV levels that are, are close to what we have in Australia, largely just because of its geographical position. But mm-hmm. what it does have uh, is snow, <laughs> a very, very wide surface. And we know that ultraviolet radiation is highly reflective. So it's, yes. it's very easy for people to get sunburn, whether they're in skiing in the middle of the winter, uh, they certainly get it when they're out on the water. So in the Antarctic, even though UV levels uh, would be significantly lower than we would experience in Australia, uh, it's still, it is still possible to get sunburn just because of the highly reflective surface um, that they're working on. Thank you for your call. Debbie is in Park Orchards. Um. I just wanted to say further to the to the comments about social media and how social media is used um, in the sunscreen conversation. I'm 41. I am um, I'm a dark skinned woman, but because of the skincare products that I use, I wear sunscreen. I wear SPF regularly. Um, but I've noticed that some social media accounts that are very much in the sort of health and wellness space and directed towards women with young children. That kind of thing. There's often a very anti-sunscreen thing mm-hmm. happening there as it relates to absorption of vitamin D. So a lot of these health and wellness um, influencers will talk about how they don't wear sunscreen. They don't put sunscreen on their kids. And these are like white, white people um, because they wear some protective clothing. They stay in the shade because they're sort of trying to get as much vitamin D as they can. Um, so I just wanted to say that's another part of the misinformation on social media. It's not well, Craig, just could, could, um, I think that's a really great question, Debbie. Craig, could you answer that one? Because vitamin D is important, but how do we balance that? And I, I stay out of the sun so much, I'm very pale, that I have had <laughs> to take vitamin D supplements in the past because my vitamin D was so low. Yeah, thanks, Debbie, for, for raising this one. Certainly people with dark skin, the context of vitamin D is often quite different. If you take people with uh, fairer skin types, in generally speaking at this time of year and certainly right through summer, if you're providing, if you're doing the right thing in terms of your sun protection advice and you're spending any time outdoors, you will be getting sufficient vitamin D uh, for your good health. And, and that's because it's essentially only a matter of minutes of exposure that one would need uh, to enable the body to receive sufficient um, vitamin D from the sun to get the benefits. In relation to uh, dark skin individuals, and particularly those with very dark skin, it takes a lot longer of that sun exposure to enable them to get the requirements of that benefit of vitamin D. It is something to to certainly talk to your doctor about if you're concerned. In some cases, it might not be um, necessary if you're out for short periods of time to use sun protection or use sunscreen because the, the, the risk of developing skin cancer as a dark skin individual is so low that the, the weight of benefit uh, is probably in terms of vitamin D. But there are relatively select uh, and small number of individuals in that case. 
on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. And some of your text messages. When you get older and start cutting off parts of your ears, it starts getting real. Uh, A lot of people texting in about their... Uh, experiences of burning themselves when they were younger and what that has meant. Uh, Another text says, loving the conversation, just wondering how you rate spray-on sunscreens. That's from George. We will uh, put that to Craig in just a moment. Lots of questions that I will get to. (laughs) There was a text message who says uh, that she now... Uh, I was a 1950s child and later in life have forgiven my mother for making me wear a T-shirt under my bathers. That's Glenda from Warrnambool. You know, my mum used to make me wear a T-shirt over my bathers and this was in the days before rashies were just what you wear, you know. That's what my kids wear on the, on the beach and that's just normal. But I used to have to go around in a terribly uncool T-shirt. Uh, but yes, definitely forgive my mother for that. 1300 Craig Sinclair is with us and will stay with us in the studio, but I would like to also bring in Samantha Marshall, who has a lived experience of melanoma. Samantha, welcome to the program. Thanks, Kirsten. Thanks for having me. Now, I understand you're only 26 years old. Uh, how is the the cancer treatment going for you now? Are you still being treated or are you in remission? So I have now been a little bit past a year post-cancer. So I've had two kinds of cancer treatment, um, one on a clinical trial at the Melanoma Institute um, and, and another one shortly after that. And that's a little bit behind me now. So it's been about a year um, since, I've, since I've last had cancer. So melanoma, was it stage three, I understand? Yeah, that's right. So I um, had a mole on my leg when I was 17 years old that I thought was a bit interesting. Um, And much like you, Kirsten, I had family who learnt the hard way about sun protection um, and the mum who certainly made me wear uncool rashies at the beach. So I went and got my skin checked um, because of that example, I suppose, that was set for me. And um, when I got my skin checked, they actually cut out a mole um, or that mole on my leg and did some testing and discovered that it wasn't um, wasn't melanoma, it wasn't anything suspicious. And you'll be as surprised as I was um, to learn when I turned 25 and um, found a lump on the inside of my leg that after some tests and a lot more tests and then a lot more tests after that, um, that was actually melanoma in the end, which originated from that initial mole. So... Um, I ended up having stage 3C melanoma, which it goes up to 4. So stage stage 3 is pretty bad. Um, but, yeah, it's that, that involved a couple of kinds of cancer treatment, um, some pretty hectic surgery and, um, and a mild disability that resulted from that as well. Oh, what an ordeal. The, the shock of being diagnosed with cancer at 25 must be incredible. We know that it's possible, but it, you just never think it, it would be you. Absolutely. I think one of the hardest conversations that I've ever had was calling my parents. Um, we, we think of our parents as, you know, one day sadly growing older and getting sick, but um, I don't think your parents expect their child to give you a call at age 25 and say, you know, mum, dad, I've got stage three melanoma. It's incredibly life-threatening and I'm going to have to go through this process. So yeah, it was an absolute shock. And I do a lot of uh, conversations with school students um, in some of the programs run by the Melanoma Institute. And one of the things that is most shocking to, to the young people that I speak with is that I'm not an, an older person. Um, when I come and speak to them, I'm now 26 and I tell them the story of 
when I was 17 and at school like they were. And, and that's, and that's a quite a compelling story for them because they don't think it will happen to them. When you look back at your childhood and perhaps your early 20s, what do you think you were doing that would have p- potentially added to, you know, that melanoma diagnosis? Yeah, good question. Um, I think you obviously can't see me on the radio, but I have skin that's pale enough to get sunburned through a bus window. I'll put it that way. Um, <laughs> although I don't have all of the features of, of a person who with high risk of melanoma. I have darker hair. I have um, darker eye colour. I don't have a lot of moles. Um, but one of the main things I think that put me at, at risk was I, I play a lot of sport. Um, I've, I spent half my childhood either on the athletics track or um, on the netball court. And I think that whilst we have, as we were talking about earlier in the program, whilst we have that um, strong focus on no hat, no play and um, rules in primary school, I think that does not extend beyond um, those kinds of arenas. So I think a a big part of the the problem for me and a big part of the the lack of prevention in my case was not necessarily my behaviour. I certainly didn't go out and tan. Um, I would have gotten very sunburnt very quickly. Um, But but certainly there were lots of um, hours of my my childhood and my adolescence that I spent outside um, playing sport without a lot of sun protection. Craig Sinclair, I'd like to bring you back into the conversation, uh, adjunct associate professor and head of prevention at the Cancer Council of Victoria. Craig, what does it mean to have someone like Samantha to be an advocate as she is for sun protection? Uh, look, uh, it, it's, it's critically important. And, and thanks, Samantha, for, for sharing your story. It, it really is impactful. The, the one thing we have learnt in public health is that individual story is so often is what resonates with people it's what motivates people to think about their behavior um, we've we've seen uh, examples and Claire Oliver some of your listeners might remember was instrumental in for example her story was instrumental in what led to that ban of commercial sunbeds but yes. this, the the very story that you're talking about means that it's real and it can affect them. So I, I can't not say thank you enough, Samantha, for being so willing to, to not only share your story today, but more importantly, to share it with other young people that you are doing, particularly in those other settings such as schools. 1300 is our number. We will go back to calls in just a moment. Samantha, what did cancer at such a young age mean for you? What sort of treatment did you have and, and what's the, the outcome of that been? Yeah, so I think I can't really quantify the impact that it's had on my life. There's not a single part of my life um, that it hasn't impacted in a really significant way. I've had, um, you know, it's been incredibly difficult um, to go through this process um, physically. I think that's one of the things that has been the hardest, um, having cancer treatment is really it's really tough on your body sometimes i as i said had a clinical trial with the melanoma institute um, for a form of immunotherapy administration which has been um, groundbreaking in the field but it's obviously quite terrifying when your best bet to um, combat your really serious cancer is a, is a clinical trial it feels a little bit experimental um, when you're the patient at least and so that involved um, infusions, sort of like the way that chemotherapy is administered through an iv but the infusions um, separated by a period of a few weeks. And then I had a surgery which cut out um, an envelope of, of lymph nodes um, in, my, in my groin, in my leg, um, which, you know, is now a, 
a 30 centimeter scar and um, I now you know have some of my hip muscles that have been sort of reconfigured and reattached and um, I have a mild disability called lymphedema as a result of that as well so that's a long-term thing um, my leg gets quite puffy I need to wear a sort of a prescription long sock every day um, and so whilst those things do seem quite small compared to how bad it could have been um, it's certainly um, it's quite impactful in the long term. And that's just not even accounting for the sort of emotional, social impact of it as well. Yeah, and the reason why I ask you that is I think perhaps some people, and maybe you can speak to this, Samantha, if if it's perhaps younger people, think that having a skin cancer is, oh, I've got a funny-looking mole or a bump, I'll just get that cut out and job done. Oh, absolutely. And I have to admit to you, that's exactly what I thought melanoma was uh, until <laughs> until very recently. Um, so it's not just a matter of getting a mole cut out. And I think the biggest myth, I suppose, about melanoma is the disconnect between the small, t- the small decisions, the short term and the long term and the impact of those. For example, I certainly would have been nervous about getting my skin checked, you know, sort of taking a, f- a few of my clothes off in front of a doctor. That's quite nerve wracking. But I can assure you that the comparative is um, a lot more people seeing your skin um, and a lot more invasive procedures or the small decisions to not wear a hat, not habitually wear sunscreen, to care about a tan and aesthetics in the short term is certainly not outweighed um, or certainly is outweighed, I should say, by the, you know, the residual disability, the, the going through cancer treatment, the, the side effects of treatment um, and some of the decisions you have to make. Like, for example, when I was you know, 15 years old, not putting sunscreen on on the netball court, I wasn't thinking about in 10 years' time having to make decisions about whether I should delay my cancer treatment and try and preserve my fertility, for example. Um, that's not something that would have crossed my mind or thought was an outcome from that decision. And so you um, had so to no do that is, as well. You had to yeah. um, think about freezing eggs. Yeah, so I actually had that process. Um, I went through it. It was very strange. I ended up in an IVF clinic um, before I had cancer treatment and that was something that they often offer to young women who want to preserve their fertility before having cancer treatment, but it, it does. And in my situation, I had some impacts from it that did actually quite significantly delay my treatment. So those kinds of decisions you have to make are, are really tough and are really big decisions. And it's not just a matter of getting a mole cut out. There's a, a really big um, life-changing experience that has so many more awful things than you can imagine when you're you know, sitting there trying to get a suntan. Samantha Marshall, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your experience. Honestly, it will save lives. Thank you very much for having me. Samantha Marshall, who uh, has recently battled with melanoma and really makes that point, Craig, about, you know, that mild unease you might feel about having to get your moles checked and or that kind of inconvenience of having to redo your sunscreen really is worth it. Absolutely. And Samantha was so articulate in terms of describing the the hazard associated with melanoma, that it's not just simply a a, a mole that might be taken out. It's something that is far more complicated than this. It is something that can easily spread through the lymph system and can affect other vital organs, whether it's your lungs or your brain. It it is that insidious. And, uh, I mean, I think, thank you, Samantha, (laughs) for for being able to articulate her experience and the impact that melanoma can have. Let's go to some calls now. And Steve is in Janjuk. Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you? Good. What did you want to ask? Um, 
just wondered whether there was any link between infrared saunas now because they're basically using heat lamps the same as the um, sun suntan beds did. Is there any link between that and skin cancers or is that just a different thing because it's EMFs? Yeah, the um, thanks, Steve. The the evidence is still emerging around uh, the uh, what we understand the infrared has on on cancer. Uh, it's it's certainly not as clear as it was with ultraviolet radiation. We've had many many decades of knowledge built up around that. Uh, so I don't think there's the same present of danger. But you have to ask you know, the question primarily: What's the benefit from those? at this point of time. So I, I still would exercise some caution. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Thanks for that. Uh, another question we've had a couple on the text message, uh, text line is about the best befores and sunscreens. So do sunscreens go off and effectively, well, are no longer effective? They, they certainly deteriorate over time. And the thing that most affects sunscreen is it generally heat so if they're being left in the glove box of the vehicle or you've taken to the beach and it's been exposed outside uh, for hours on end the the heat does deteriorate make the the sunscreen deteriorate over time so the advice generally is that you can't expect the product to perform at the level of which it was when you first purchased it and while the best before is a, a good indicator of when it's time to uh, replace your sunscreen. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to just throw it all in the bin either. I mean, it just just make sure that you, you realise that it's not going to be performing at its best once it gets beyond that use-by date. Professor Richard Scolio will be joining us in just a moment from the Melanoma Institute Australia. You're listening to The Conversation Hour here on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is The Conversation Hour. And before we bring in Richard Scolia, I promised a texter that I would ask about spray-on sunscreen. Craig Sinclair, is spray-on sunscreen as good as the cream? Well, if you're looking at aerosols, uh, the, the answer to that is definitely not. Oh. We know that, um, just to give you a very brief background, so aerosols are, are, are tested in a way which they test the, the content of the, of the can, but they don't test it as an aerosol product, which means that if you use it on a, a, the beach where wind conditions might be 10 or 20 kilometres per hour, which is pretty standard on any beach day, you could lose effectively up to 90% of the product as it dissipates in the wind as it passes between the can and your arm. Um, so it becomes um, fairly ineffective and you, you just can't get that intensity of spray onto your arm to get that value. And it becomes very costly uh, to get a full body application on a 20 kilometer hour wind it could cost up <laughs> as up to 90 dollars um, so you might need two or three cans to get that full um, bodied uh, application at the level of thickness that's required to get the protection on the can so certainly wouldn't recommend those your general other sprays that are non-aerosol uh, can be can be effective 
That's very good to know. I've been using them to try and chase my children around yes. <laughs> to get some sunscreen on them, but I think I might have to just physically hold them and, <laughs> yes. and, and apply the sunscreen. I'd like to introduce Professor Richard Scolia AO from the Melanoma Institute Australia. He's the co-medical director. I wanted to ask Richard firstly how you're going. I think many of our uh, listeners will know that you were diagnosed with brain cancer in June and I follow you on your Facebook page where you're documenting your Canberra, your, your cancer journey and um, I know that you've had some scans recently. Yeah, I'm actually travelling pretty well, yeah, not, not too bad. Um, unfortunately, the subtype of, of brain cancer I've got is called glioblastoma and I've got the worst of the worst in, um, in, in the subtypes of glioblastoma. It's basically... Uh, incurable cancer and um, it, the treatment hasn't changed in 18 years and I think to what we've done for melanoma so 15 years ago in melanoma if your melanoma had spread around your body then most people were dead in five years and now because of discoveries that we've made in melanoma particularly in the field of immunotherapy now more than 50% of people are alive five years later so and we think most of those people have been cured so we've made some great discoveries and and what I'm trying to do thanks to my um, friend and colleague um, Professor Georgina Long who's the co-medical director with me at at the Melanoma Institute Australia, we're using some of these discoveries um, to try and treat my, my glioblastoma or brain cancer. So, yeah, I'm the first patient in the world to have what we call neoadjuvant combination immunotherapy. So before the tumour was debulked, I had some combination immunotherapy. And we know that in melanoma, if you give the immunotherapy before the tumour's debulked with more tumour on board, it, it, the immunotherapy stimulates the immune system to, to try and fight those cancer cells off. So we've already got some scientific data based on analysis of my tumour, uh, which was taken out after the immunotherapy, that there was some uh, marked stimulation of the immune system. The numbers of immune cells have gone up. They're activated immune cells. And, and we proved that the that immunotherapy crosses the blood-brain barrier. There'd been some doubt in the brain cancer field, but you know, we'd proven in melanoma that that's not the case. So, yeah, nice to prove all the, these things are happening. But whether it translates into improvements in clinical outcome, yeah, we, we don't know yet. Time will be the answer to that one. I mean, it's truly remarkable, Richard, what you're doing and what you're doing for cancer research. You know, we're all so sorry about the diagnosis. Is it about prolonging your life or is there a small chance that a cure can be found for you? Yeah, well, I guess no one knows. Um, but when, when we first put it on the table, and you know, Georgina came up with this plan and she's treated more patients with immunotherapy than any doctor in the world. And there was some resistance from the from the community. People were scared from the, the medical community. And um, my wife and I wrote some long letters saying we understand the risks and we're willing to take it on. It potentially could have um, could end my life more quickly than what what um, standard therapy would. But um, yeah, we're, we're very experienced in melanoma, so the risk benefits to me seem to make sense. And if that treatment hasn't changed and it's remained incurable for almost 20 years, well, that, that doesn't sit right with me. We need to try and make a difference. So there was a chance that I'd die more quickly or be left with permanent 
um, changes that would make my life miserable for however long I stay alive. But I think those, for me, those risks weren't um, weren't strong enough to hold me back from trying something new. And um, yeah, I, I guess that there's a chance that my life may, may be prolonged and, and I guess you know, my minuscule chance that I'll be cured from it. But already the discoveries that we've made are, are transforming brain cancer. Some um, biopharmaceutical companies are look, looking to open some clinical trials based on the data that was generated out of my brain tumour. So hopefully we'll, we'll make some improvements for future brain cancer patients. Truly astounding. Well, Richard, we've got you here today to talk about melanoma because you've already really helped advance melanoma research globally in the work that you've done in your career. What are some of the advancements in melanoma treatment and other skin yeah. cancers? Yeah, so particularly in, in um, melanoma, initially there weren't any effective treatments up until about Oh, 15 years ago, a little bit less, and then we um, developed some targeted therapies against the disease. So people whose tumour had particular mutations in their DNA that were causing the melanocytes or the, the tumour cells to, to grow uncontrollably, and you could block the growth by giving a targeted therapies, but they didn't, they didn't give really prolonged effect. People tended to recur with it, and then immunotherapy came along, and really... This is stimulating your body's own immune system to recognise the tumour cells and and kill them off. And um, yeah, it's just it's totally transformed melanoma. And now it, they're used through the discoveries that we've made in melanoma. They're used to treat lung cancer, renal cell cancer, head and neck cancer, and and, and many others. So yeah, our, our melanoma discoveries have truly transformed cancer management. Um, mm. Yeah, across the world, and no doubt saving saving um, thousands of lives. But at the, the Melanoma Institute um, is not just focused on advanced disease. We're, we've got three um, pillars of activity. The clinical care of melanoma patients is our number one. We're the largest melanoma treatment and research centre. Also performing research to improve treatment and, and lastly to educate um, our colleagues and the community. In, in our research, we don't just focus on advanced melanoma. We also focus on prevention management of patients with early stage disease and also in supportive care and survivorship of, of patients. So we're, we're aiming to get to zero deaths from melanoma and no doubt our discoveries will be translated into other cancers too. Is the message getting through when it comes to prevention? And we've spent most of this hour speaking about pre uh, prevention with Craig Sinclair, who's in the studio with us from the Cancer Council. Because tanning culture still exists and people are still dying from skin cancers, um, you know, nearly 2,000 Australians every year. Yeah, it's a, it's a very important point because prevention is better than cure. So following the SunSmart um, rules with um, protecting your, your skin from exposure to the outside world, I'm sure Craig's already discussed these things, but the slip slop slap campaign and trying to avoid the sun in the middle of the day wearing sunscreen for any exposed parts wearing hats sunglasses and protective clothing and, and going in the shade when you're outside are all very important things because yeah as i say prevention is better than cure so re really important messages and we have a, a student SunSafe ambassador program where we're trying to get the message through to, to teenagers and we we bring in young um 
teenagers to learn about melanoma and, and having um, spread the message amongst their peers. So we're, we're proud of that and hopeful that that's having an effect. You've raised about the social media. Last year, Georgina Long and I um, spoke at the National Press Club and raised these types of issues. So social media, the giant um, social media platform TikTok had this sunburnt challenge where people were, were uh, asked to show their sunburn and it was getting millions and millions of postings. So we, we called it out and we, we were just um, blown away that the next week TikTok um, approached us and said, we want to do something about this. And they they, um, they put out a social media campaign to try and reduce um, sun exposure. So I think it's important that we do talk about it. Um, sun safety in sport is another thing that we raised at the National Press Club and mm. with co collaborators, um, we've put together a national statement that is going to be released at the Institute of Sport in December. So we're happy to be um, Georgina and I are happy to be involved in that launch. So, yeah, lots of things are being done. And it's important that we don't forget about um, prevention is better than cure. So really important um, point that you've just raised. Stay with us, Richard. Let's take a few calls. Hayley is in Richmond. I just wanted to share my, my melanoma story. Um, so 27 years ago, I went to the doctor. I had a little lump on the back of my head that had been there for more than three years, but it had started to change. It just changed by becoming itchy. Um, and the doctor said, look, we'll, we'll take it off. We'll send it to pathology and we'll get it checked. And a week later, I got a call to come back to the doctor and was told that I probably had three to four months to live, um, that it was a really aggressive melanoma a very rare type of melanoma it had no color it wasn't brown it wasn't black um and you know i was 26 at the time and i was referred off to a plastic surgeon and an oncologist and had um a wide excision on the back of my scalp so i've got a substantial scar on the back of my head but fortunately my hair falls over the top of it but i think the the, the most harrowing thing at the time was that there wasn't treatment. Um, and my oncologist reached out to a company who was introducing immunotherapies at the time. Um, and the, but the only option was to pay about 15 to $20,000 a month because it wasn't on the PBS. So um, a company that was bringing in immunotherapies for melanoma into Australia and trying to get it listed on the PBS they um, reached out and said that they would sponsor me. So they delivered the, medic um, the medicine to me each week. Um, fortunately, my mum was a nurse, so she could, I had to have it through an IV for the first month and then injections every yeah. day. Um, but, you know, it's just amazing to hear the advancements in melanoma treatments. Um, yeah, and Hayley, I think you really have brought that home and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And uh, we are running out of time. But Richard, I think when we talk about the advancements, Hayley's story exemplifies that. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, just uh, amazing that she's yeah, been able to benefit in this way. And um, yeah, just th thank you, Hayley, for sharing the story. And well, I just wanted to bring up one other thing, if I may. Recently, through our work in melanoma, we've been able to show that if you give immunotherapy in patients who, whose tumours spread to local lymph glands, um, that if you give the immunotherapy before cutting out the tumour, it's more effective. And we can identify a sub 
group of patients who, when they have their tumour removed six weeks after the immunotherapy's um, been commenced, we can get a sense of, based on the response that's happened, whether they need to, to continue on. And um, Professor Georgina and, I, and Long and I recently put a submission to the government to uh, consider funding of immunotherapy in this setting. And, um, and two reasons for it. One is it's more effective and also saving lives for, for patients. But secondly, it identifies a subset of patients who don't need to continue on with immunotherapy. So in effect, it's saving taxpayers money as well. And this is the, I understand it, it's been approved. It hasn't actually come into to, um, funding just yet. But I understand that this is the first time or one of the first times that investigators rather than pharmaceutical companies have put into the government to get funding like that, like this. So we're very proud of that and yeah. that the pharmaceutical benefits team or PBSC have looked at it and, and have approved it. That's hugely important. Let's just uh, go to David in Torquay. David, you'll be our last caller. We've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, thank you. Uh, if you could share your story. No worries. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, look, um, this is just from a partner's perspective. Um, uh, my childhood sweetheart, um, Emily, um, died from stage four melanoma uh, back in 2007. Uh, and she was, uh, she was 27 years old the time um look she was diagnosed um about 18 months before she passed away and um it was just a, a mole on her back similar story um to to uh that caller um previously and um yeah look they cut it out and they tested it and it came back benign and then, and then, yeah. Look, she did a rant. There was a random, um, not a random, a, a sorry, a breast, a, a breast check that was done um, just before we got married. Um, and uh, the GP found a lump in her lymph gland, and that's how it's uh, that's how it came about. They did a biopsy, and um, and yeah, it came back as uh, stage four melanoma. I'm so sorry, David. And um, so you you got married knowing that she had you know while she was battling cancer. No, we actually we, we actually didn't. We she got the biopsy done. We didn't find out until um, uh, like about a couple of weeks after we got married, oh. and we were just about to go on our honeymoon. Oh. Um, yeah, but I guess look, really, I'm happy to hear that. Um, you know the that. Um, you know the medical fraternity's treatment is is improving uh, mm. the chances of melanoma sufferers but i think my god the the uh yeah people have just got to be more careful you know and i think prevention definitely is um it's just so important i mean Absolutely. emily always took she always took care at the sun but um the the struggle over that 18 month period with treatment and surgery and you know she she was amazing um how mm. she dealt with it but you know it, 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 the death of M just impacted so many people um it was just such a massive ripple effect yeah david thank you so much for sharing your story and it's those stories that bring it home that um how real the danger of the sun is briefly i wanted to ask you both richard and craig 
I had a lot of text messages and I cannot, cannot get to them all. Multiple questions about sunscreen. Should it be free given how important it is in our protection? What are both of your thoughts on that, Craig? Look, it's uh, certainly we know price is a big factor in terms of people being able and freely be able to use it a lot. Uh, we know people generally uh, find that they don't use enough and cost may be very much a contributor to that. Whether it um, being free is a question that um, we, it's a, it's a big one, it's, it's, it's not, it's a question who pays for it. Fortunately in schools and early childhood settings it is free and that's, those settings are really important where mm. they are available. Uh, and Richard, what are your thoughts on, on that or should there be other measures that we can take for prevention? Yeah, well, well I, I um, agree with Dave with, with um, Craig's comments. And just to, to add in, as you alluded to, Kristen, the other um, other forms of, of, of prevention of melanoma, other, other types of behaviour, so avoiding the sun in the middle of the day, wearing, um, put it going under shade, and wearing a hat, sunglasses, etc., is is probably more important than wearing sunscreen. So protecting your skin with with physical measures and sun, using sunscreen on exposed parts of the skin is um, is, is is the sort of last last line of defence. So Perfect. yeah, just advocate that comment. Thank you so much, Professor Richard Scolia from the Melanoma Institute Australia. Thank you so much for joining us and all the best with your own health and your cancer journey. And to Craig Sinclair from the Cancer Council who has joined us in the studio.